Chapter Eleven, Part One of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte, Chapter Eleven, Fieldhead, Part One. Yet Caroline refused tamely to succumb. She had native strength in her girl's heart, and she used it. Men and women never struggle so hard as when they struggle alone, without witness, counselor, or confidant, unencouraged, unadvised, and unpitied. Miss Hellstone was in this position. Her sufferings were her only spur, and being very real and sharp, they roused her spirit keenly. Bent on victory over a mortal pain, she did her best to quell it. Never had she been so busy, so studious, and, above all, so active. She took walks in all weathers, long walks in solitary directions. Day by day she came back in the evening, pale and wearied-looking, yet seemingly not fatigued, for still, as soon as she had thrown off her bonnet and shawl, she would, instead of resting, begin to pace her apartment, Sometimes she would not sit down till she was literally faint. She said she did this to tire herself well, that she might sleep soundly at night. But if that was her aim, it was unattained, for at night, when others slumbered, she was tossing on her pillow, or sitting at the foot of her couch in the darkness, forgetful, apparently, of the necessity of seeking repose. Often, unhappy girl, she was crying, crying in a sort of intolerable despair, which, when it rushed over her, smote down her strength, and reduced her to childlike helplessness. When thus prostrate, temptations besieged her. Weak suggestions whispered in her weary heart to write to Robert, and say that she was unhappy because she was forbidden to see him and Hortense, and that she feared he would withdraw his friendship, not love, from her, and forget her entirely, and begging him to remember her and sometimes to write to her. One or two such letters she actually indicted, but she never sent them. Shame and good sense forbade. At last the life she led reached the point when it seemed she could bear it no longer, that she must seek and find a change somehow, or her heart and head would fail under the pressure which strained them. She longed to leave Briarfield, to go to some very distant place. She longed for something else, the deep, secret, anxious yearning to discover and know her mother strengthened daily. But with the desire was coupled a doubt, a dread. If she knew her, could she love her? There was cause for hesitation, for apprehension on this point. Never in her life had she heard that mother praised. Whoever mentioned her, mentioned her coolly. Her uncle seemed to regard his sister-in-law with a sort of tacit antipathy. An old servant, who had lived with Mrs. James Hellstone for a short time after her marriage, whenever she referred to her former mistress, spoke with chilling reserve. Sometimes she called her queer. Sometimes she said she did not understand her. These expressions were ice to the daughter's heart. They suggested the conclusions that it was perhaps better never to know her parent than to know her and not like her. 
but one project she could frame, whose execution seemed likely to bring her a hope of relief. It was to take a situation, to be a governess. She could do nothing else. A little incident brought her to the point when she found courage to break her design to her uncle. Her long and late walks lay always, as has been said, on lonely roads, but in whatever direction she had rambled, whether along the drear skirts of Stilbro Moor, or over the sunny stretch of Nunnally Common, her homeward path was still so contrived as to lead her near the hollow. She rarely descended the den, but she visited its brink at twilight almost as regularly as the stars rose over the hill-crests. Her resting-place was at a certain stile under a certain old thorn. Thence she could look down on the cottage, the mill, the dewy garden-ground, the still deep dam. Thence was visible the well-known counting-house window, from whose panes, at a fixed hour, shot, suddenly bright, the ray of the well-known lamp. Her errand was to watch for this ray, her reward to catch it sometimes sparkling bright in clear air, sometimes shimmering dim through mist, and anon flashing broken between slant lines of rain, for she came in all weathers. There were nights when it failed to appear. She knew then that Robert was from home, and went away doubly sad, whereas its kindling rendered her elate, as though she saw in it the promise of some indefinite hope. If, while she gazed, a shadow bent between the light and lattice, her heart leaped. That eclipse was Robert. She had seen him. She would return home comforted, carrying in her mind a clearer vision of his aspect, a distincter recollection of his voice, his smile, his hearing, and, blent with these impressions, was often a sweet persuasion that if she could get near him, his heart might welcome her presence yet that at this moment he might be willing to extend his hand and draw her to him, and shelter her at his side as he used to do. That night, though she might weep as usual, she would fancy her tears less scalding, the pillow they watered seemed a little softer, the temples pressed to that pillow ached less. The shortest path from the hollow to the rectory wound near a certain mansion, the same under whose lone walls Malone passed on that night journey mentioned in an early chapter of this work, the old and tenantless dwelling Iclept Fieldhead. Tenantless by the proprietor it had been for ten years, but it was no ruin. Mr. York had seen it kept in good repair, and an old gardener and his wife had lived in it, cultivated the grounds, and maintained the house in habitable condition. If Fieldhead had few other merits as a building, it might at least be termed picturesque. Its irregular architecture, and the grey and mossy colouring communicated by time, gave it a just claim to this epithet. The old latticed windows, the stone porch, the walls, the roof, the chimney-stacks, were rich in crayon touches and sepia lights and shades. The trees behind were fine, bold, and spreading. The cedar on the lawn in front was grand, and the granite urns on the garden wall, the fretted arch of the gateway, were for an artist as the very desire of the eye. 
One mild May evening, Caroline passing near about moonrise, and feeling, though weary, unwilling yet to go home, where there was only the bed of thorns and the night of grief to anticipate, sat down on the mossy ground near the gate, and gazed through toward cedar and mansion. It was a still night, calm, dewy, cloudless. The gables turned to the west, reflected the clear amber of the horizon they faced. The oaks behind were black, the cedar was blacker, under its dense raven boughs a glimpse of sky opened gravely blue. It was full of the moon, which looked solemnly and mildly down on Caroline from beneath that sombre canopy. She felt this night and prospect mournfully lovely. She wished she could be happy. She wished she could know inward peace. She wondered Providence had no pity on her, and would not help or console her. Recollections of happy trysts of lovers commemorated in old ballads returned on her mind. She thought such tryst in such scene would be blissful. Where now was Robert, she asked. Not at the hollow. She had watched for his lamp long, and had not seen it. She questioned within herself whether she and Moore were ever destined to meet and speak again. Suddenly the door within the stone porch of the hall opened, and two men came out, one elderly and white-headed, the other young, dark-haired, and tall. They passed across the lawn, out through a portal in the garden wall. Caroline saw them cross the road, pass the stile, descend the fields. She saw them disappear. Robert Moore had passed before her with his friend Mr. York. Neither had seen her. The apparition had been transient, scarce seen ere gone, but its electric passage left her veins kindled, her soul insurgent. It found her despairing, it left her desperate, two different states. Oh, had he but been alone, had he but seen me, was her cry. He would have said something, he would have given me his hand. He does, he must love me a little. He would have shown some token of affection, in his eye, on his lips, I should have read comfort. But the chance is lost. The wind, the cloud's shadow, does not pass more silently, more emptily than he. I have been mocked, and heaven is cruel." Thus, in the utter sickness of longing and disappointment, she went home. The next morning at breakfast, when she appeared white-cheeked and miserable-looking as one who had seen a ghost, she inquired of Mr. Hellstone, "'Have you any objection, uncle, to my inquiring for a situation in a family?' Her uncle, ignorant as the table supporting his coffee-cup of all his niece had undergone and was undergoing, scarcely believed his ears. "'What whim now?' he asked. "'Are you bewitched?' "'What can you mean?' "'I am not well, and need a change,' she said. He examined her. He discovered she had experienced a change, at any rate. Without his being aware of it, the rose had dwindled and faded to a mere snowdrop. Bloom had vanished, flesh wasted. She sat before him, drooping, colourless, and thin. But for the soft expression of her brown eyes— the delicate lines of her features, and the flowing abundance of her hair, she would no longer have possessed a claim to the epithet pretty. 
"'What on earth is the matter with you?' he asked. "'What is wrong? How are you ailing?' No answer. Only the brown eyes filled, the faintly tinted lips trembled. "'Look out for a situation indeed. For what situation are you fit? What have you been doing with yourself? You are not well.' "'I should be well if I went from home.' "'These women are incomprehensible.' They have the strangest knack of startling you with unpleasant surprises. Today you see them bouncing, buxom, red as cherries and round as apples. Tomorrow they exhibit themselves effete as dead weeds, blanched and broken down. And the reason of it all? That's the puzzle. She has her meals, her liberty, a good house to live in and good clothes to wear, as usual. A while since that sufficed to keep her handsome and cheery, and there she sits now, a poor little pale puling chit enough, provoking. Then comes the question, what is to be done? I suppose I must send for advice. Will you have a doctor, child? No, uncle, I don't want one. A doctor could do me no good. I merely want change of air and scene. Well, if that be the caprice, it shall be gratified. "'You shall go to a watering-place. "'I don't mind the expense. "'Fanny shall accompany you.' "'But, Uncle, some day I must do something for myself. "'I have no fortune. "'I had better begin now. "'While I live, you shall not turn out as a governess, Caroline. "'I will not have it said that my niece is a governess. "'But the later in life one makes a change of that sort, Uncle, "'the more difficult and painful it is.' I should wish to get accustomed to the yoke before any habits of ease and independence are formed. I beg you will not harass me, Caroline. I mean to provide for you. I have always meant to provide for you. I will purchase an annuity. Bless me, I am but fifty-five. My health and constitution are excellent. There is plenty of time to save and take measures. Don't make yourself anxious respecting the future. Is that what frets you? "'No, uncle, but I long for a change.' He laughed. "'There speaks the woman,' cried he, "'the very woman. "'A change, a change, "'always fantastical and whimsical. "'Well, it's in her sex.' "'But it is not fantasy and whim, uncle. "'What is it, then?' "'Necessity, I think. "'I feel weaker than formerly. "'I believe I should have more to do.' admirable she feels weak and therefore she should be set to hard labor claire come le jour as moore confound moore you shall go to cliffbridge and there are two guineas to buy a new frock come carrie never fear we'll find balm in gilead uncle i wish you were less generous and more more what sympathizing was the word on caroline's lips but it was not uttered she checked herself in time. Her uncle would indeed have laughed if that namby-pamby word had escaped her. Finding her silent, he said, "'The fact is you don't know precisely what you want.' "'Only to be a governess.' Pooh, Mere nonsense. I'll not hear of governessing. Don't mention it again. It is rather too feminine a fancy. I have finished breakfast. Ring the bell.' "'Put all crotchets out of your head, and run away and amuse yourself.' "'What with, my doll?' asked Caroline to herself as she quitted the room. "'A week or two passed. 
Her bodily and mental health neither grew worse nor better. She was now precisely in that state when, if her constitution had contained the seeds of consumption, decline, or slow fever, those diseases would have been rapidly developed, and would soon have carried her quietly from the world. People never die of love or grief alone, though some die of inherent maladies which the tortures of those passions prematurely force into destructive action. The sound by nature undergo these tortures, and are racked, shaken, shattered. Their beauty and bloom perish, but life remains untouched. They are brought to a certain point of dilapidation. They are reduced to pallor, debility, and emaciation. People think, as they see them gliding languidly about, that they will soon withdraw to sick-beds, perish there, and cease from among the healthy and happy. This does not happen. They live on, and though they cannot regain youth and gaiety, they may regain strength and serenity. The blossom which the march wind nips but fails to sweep away may survive to hang a withered apple on the tree late into autumn. Having braved the last frosts of spring, it may also brave the first of winter. Everyone noticed the change in Miss Hellstone's appearance, and most people said she was going to die. She never thought so herself. She felt in no dying case. She had neither pain nor sickness. Her appetite was diminished. She knew the reason. It was because she wept so much at night. Her strength was lessened. She could account for it. Sleep was coy and hard to be won. Dreams were distressing and baleful. In the far future she still seemed to anticipate a time when this passage of misery should be got over, and when she should once more be calm, though perhaps never again happy. Meanwhile her uncle urged her to visit, to comply with the frequent invitations of their acquaintance. This she evaded doing. She could not be cheerful in company. She felt she was observed there with more curiosity than sympathy. Old ladies were always offering her their advice, recommending this or that nostrum. Young ladies looked at her in a way she understood, and from which she shrank. Their eyes said they knew she had been disappointed, as custom phrases it, by whom they were not certain. Commonplace young ladies can be quite as hard as commonplace young gentlemen, quite as worldly and selfish. Those who suffer should always avoid them. Grief and calamity they despise. They seem to regard them as the judgments of God on the lowly. With them, to love is merely to contrive a scheme for achieving a good match. To be disappointed is to have their scheme seen through and frustrated. They think the feelings and projects of others on the subject of love similar to their own, and judge them accordingly. All this Caroline knew, partly by instinct, partly by observation. She regulated her conduct by her knowledge, keeping her pale face and wasted figure as much out of sight as she could. Living thus in complete seclusion, she ceased to receive intelligence of the little transactions of the neighborhood. One morning her uncle came into the parlor, where she sat endeavoring to find some pleasure in painting a little group of wild flowers, gathered under a hedge at the top of the hollow fields. 
and said to her in his abrupt manner, "'Come, child, you are always stooping over palette or book or sampler. Leave that tinting work. By the by, do you put your pencil to your lips when you paint?' "'Sometimes, uncle, when I forget.' "'Then it is that which is poisoning you. The paints are deleterious, child. There is white lead and red lead and verdigris and gamboge, and twenty other poisons in those colour cakes.' "'Lock them up! Lock them up! "'Get your bonnet on. I want you to make a call with me.' "'With you, uncle?' This question was asked in a tone of surprise. She was not accustomed to make calls with her uncle. She never rode or walked out with him on any occasion. "'Quick, quick! I am always busy, you know. I have no time to lose.' She hurriedly gathered up her materials, asking, meantime, where they were going. "'To Fieldhead. Fieldhead? What, to see old James Booth, the gardener? Is he ill?' "'We are going to see Miss Shirley Keeldar.' "'Miss Keeldar? Is she come to Yorkshire? Is she at Fieldhead?' "'She is. She has been there a week. I met her at a party last night, that party to which you would not go. I was pleased with her. I choose that you shall make her acquaintance. It will do you good.' She is now come of age, I suppose. She is come of age, and will reside for a time on her property. I lectured her on the subject. I showed her her duty. She is not intractable. She is rather a fine girl. She will teach you what it is to have a sprightly spirit. Nothing lackadaisical about her. I don't think she will want to see me, or to have me introduced to her. What good can I do her? How can I amuse her? "'Pshaw! Put your bonnet on!' "'Is she proud, uncle?' "'Don't know. You hardly imagine she would show her pride to me, I suppose. A chit like that would scarcely presume to give herself airs with the rector of her parish, however rich she might be.' "'No, but how did she behave to other people?' "'Didn't observe. She holds her head high, and probably can be saucy enough where she dare. She wouldn't be a woman otherwise.' "'There, away now for your bonnet at once.' Not naturally very confident, a failure of physical strength and a depression of spirits had not tended to increase Caroline's presence of mind and ease of manner, or to give her additional courage to face strangers, and she quailed, in spite of self-remonstrance, as she and her uncle walked up the broad paved approach, leading from the gateway of Fieldhead to its porch. She followed Mr. Hellstone reluctantly through that porch, into the somber old vestibule beyond. End of chapter 11, part 1